Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight. Our guest today is Freddie Silva, one of the world's leading experts on sacred sites and crop circles and a leading researcher into ancient systems of knowledge and the interaction between temples and consciousness. He's the best-selling author of Secrets in the Fields, The Divine Blueprint, and his latest book that we're going to explore today, First Templar Nation. He appears regularly on History and Discovery channels, the BBC, and radio shows such as Coast to Coast. And he's directed several documentaries. He lectures worldwide and has delivered keynote presentations at the International Science and Consciousness Conference and the International Society for the Study of Subtle Energies and Energy Medicine. And he's considered to be one of the best metaphysical speakers in the world. Freddie also leads private tours to Britain, France and Malta and Egypt. Welcome, Freddie. Oh, hello, Miriam. It's going to be an afternoon of uh, strange accents. <laughs> I can't help it. When I speak to anyone who has an English accent, I get Englisher and Englisher. <laughs> and then and, I'll do the whole thing as Sean Connery then. <laughs> Put me in front of a southerner and I go south. <laughs> anyway, you know, Ever since I read Ivanhoe as a girl, I've been drawn to the Templars. But I have to say that I have never read a book that gave me such a sense of who the Templars are and what they accomplished. So I want to thank you for that, Freddie. It's been really a journey of awakening. Yeah, it was uh, a 15-year labor of love for me, too. And uh, having been born in Portugal, and this is why I'm talking about strange accents, um, <laughs> I, it was it was a labor of love, and um, I, I was very fascinated also by the fact that the Templars uh, were always known in Portugal as the people who created my country of birth. And uh, I wanted to find out more about why would nine men venture all the way from central France in the 12th century to Jerusalem and then uh, go 2,000 miles west to create a country from scratch, uh, something didn't really add up. And I'd never read any single book on the Templars, and there's at least... 15,000 of these published. Uh, no book of the Templars has actually adequately explained what they were doing in Portugal. And I thought, this could be a nice little project. And um, little did I realize that uh, 15 years later, it was still going on and it still amazes me to this day. I think we have to tell our readers that the Templars were actually behind the founding of Portugal as Europe's first nation state. Exactly, and that's what makes it even more interesting. Not only did they create a country from scratch uh, out of virgin territory, but uh, it was also uh, the first independent nation-state in Europe, uh, way before France, Spain, Italy, uh, Great Britain. Um, and that's a huge achievement, and I had no idea. So I guess uh, it brings up all kinds of questions. You know, why, what motivated them to do this in the first place? And then why would they create a, a nation as far away from Rome as was physically possible back in the 12th century. Uh, clearly, there was something more go that met the eye, and uh, that's what uh, really sort of encouraged me to look a little bit further. And then this, the story got stranger and stranger as I kept probing deeper and deeper into the mysteries of what really the Templars were about. Well, let's start with that first group of nine. I mean, this was before the Crusades, wasn't it? It was, uh, most people actually lumped the Crusades and the Templars together, and in fact they're two very different entities. Um, the Crusades were essentially set up 
uh, by uh, the Pope at the time, Pope Pius IX, uh, as aroused to go and liberate the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre from uh, some rather unpleasant Arab people uh, who basically taken over from some very nice Arab people before them. And uh, it seems to me in my research that uh, it was actually a good excuse to send 30,000 men uh, to help out his friend, the uh, Emperor Constantine, uh, over in Constantinople. And um, I, uh, it, it seems to be that on the back of this, they eventually did end up in Jerusalem to actually liberate the, uh, the city. Uh, but the Templars actually were playing a very low key in all of this. They, uh, the first member of the, of the Templars that we know, who is, of course, is the most famous of them all, uh, Hugh de Payon, he only shows up in the city in 1104, uh, and that's f- uh, four and a half years after the liberation by the Crusades. So we're talking about a completely different group of people. Uh, secondly, uh, all the people that were involved with the Templars, and uh, historically there were only supposed to be nine of them, um, they all appear to have come from uh, uh, places in Europe which were all linked to the Cistercian monasteries, uh, the Order of Sister, and its abbot, Bernard of Clairvaux. So it seems to me that uh, these people definitely did not go there with the intent of doing any fighting. And thirdly, it was the fact that half of these uh, monks were also not French or Belgium in origin. Uh, two of them, at least, were Portuguese uh, in, of birth. So it made the whole concept seem rather strange. The, the story that we've been told is very, very different. And it seems to me that uh, when you examine the Templars closely in their actions and what they were doing on Temple Mound all those years, they seem to be behaving more like a ministerial college than a bunch of knights. Uh, and when you reason that they were following orders from this incredible figure called Bernard of Clairvaux and uh, what he stood for, uh, it seems to me that these people went on the back of the Crusades and taking the opportunity while Jerusalem was liberated to go look for something of incredible importance. And, of course, once we realize the, the location that they chose to live in, then we start putting one and one together and realize that they were there looking for something of incredible importance. So they were actually digging underneath the site of Solomon's temple, is that correct? Uh, exactly. And uh, here's what I find extraordinary about this whole concept. So here you have a whole bunch of uh, guys who uh, they were very rich. They certainly did not come from poverty. Um, they gave up all of their worldly possessions to travel all the way to Jerusalem, which even back then was no mean feat. Uh, they approached the king of Jerusalem and said, uh, we'd like to go and live uh, in this particular house on Temple Mound, which just happens to be your main residence, King of Jerusalem. Uh, They're dressed like a bunch of old vagrants. Uh, They gave up all of their worldly possessions, and they spent the next uh, nine years digging tunnels underneath Jerusalem, uh, supposedly to find this huge hoard of gold, which made them very rich. Uh, Now, any uh, uh, logical person will look at this and think, what a ridiculous story. Why would you give up all your wealth and all your comfort to travel 1,600 miles to dig tunnels only to become wealthy again. Uh, Something isn't adding up. Uh, But if you look back at the history of the site that they were very adamant uh, that they wanted to live in, it's very clear that they were looking for the places where the Essene culture was also living in uh, 1,100 years before them. And uh, the Essenes, of course, were a a group of very mystical people uh, who had uh, some very unusual characteristics about faith. Uh, Two of these characteristics were to do with the uh, self-development of the individual and also the concept of resurrection, 
which is not quite what we think it is, or at least what we've been told. And uh, when you look at the Templars and the Essenes, it's quite clearly that the two orders were one and the same. One was following the other. Um, they all wore white robes. They obviously gave all their money away to become poor. They followed the one-year um, observation period where they would have to be uh, really minding themselves in uh, the way that they spoke, they behaved. And after this, if they were worthy, they were allowed into an inner secret brotherhood where they were taught the secrets of the mysteries. And from there, three years later, hopefully, they would rise from the dead. Uh, and then they would go, go on to preach uh, this concept uh, to other people and allow other people to join it in a ministerial brotherhood. So we're dealing with people who had a very clear goal in mind, who were following ancient traditions uh, dating back to the mystery schools. The mystery schools in Egypt. Uh, exactly. Uh, if we look at uh, what the Egyptian pharaohs were doing, some of the Egyptian pharaohs were doing, uh, it's quite clear, going back to at least 2000 BC, that they too were following a practice of rising from the dead. Um, and let me clarify that for a second, because our concept uh, in the Christian world of the resurrection and raising the dead is actually um, not quite what we've been led to believe. Uh, even as far back as the Egyptian times, uh, there was a sense that People who uh, walk, uh, get up in the morning and they go and do their daily chores and carry on with life as though there's nothing more than this material world, and then they go back to sleep again, these people were unaware or seemed to be unaware of the bigger mystery in life, you know, how the world really turns, how nature itself actually uh, invents itself, and how you can actually work with nature's mysterious ways to move energy around and become greater than the sum of your parts. And they called these people the walking dead, uh, people who were totally unaware. But for the people who actually practiced a much deeper understanding of nature and were able to harness its uh, means and ways, um, they were called the risen. Uh, in fact, the Essenes had a very good name for it. They were the people of the way. And it, in one of the inscriptions in the Egyptian um, underground chambers in the Pyramid of Saqqara, it is quite clear that there is a ritual that was practiced by people who are not dead. Uh, the pharaoh is very much alive. He goes on a journey overnight, and it's very obvious from reading the transcription that this person went into a shamanic journey, and he was awakened uh, to the light of dawn after going on uh, this incredible journey. Uh, into the world of the dead, of the underworld. And it's quite clear that this person was still in his body when he came out of this. And these people were, uh, who went through this initiation were declared to be risen or resurrected. Uh, so this is a very, very old concept of where people would gather information about the mysteries, they would learn about the, the secrets of the universe, how to work with subtle energy, and were able to work with this in a very conscious way that gave him power over the laws of nature to a certain degree. And uh, this was part of the secret the initiation practices of the mystery schools and why they were also kept very secret from people who would otherwise misuse this information. So when we get to the Templars, it's quite clear from their practices, because they too work with secret underground initiation chambers around Europe, uh, some of them are still found in Portugal, um, that these people were following a very, very old tradition of uh, self-enlightenment. And it's the one thing that was the most dangerous uh, object to the power of the Catholic Church at the time, the self-empowerment of the individual, because as we know, um, they had a monopoly on this at the time. So no wonder 
uh, the, all of these people from the Ascends all the way through to the Templars were pretty much exterminated by the church because obviously they had something that was so heretical, so dangerous to their power. You point out in your book that both John the Baptist and Jesus were members of the Essene sect. And in fact, it's really more the uh, philosophy or the teachings of John the Baptist that are um, followed or perhaps held in reverence. Um, can you expand upon that? Oh, very much so. In fact, I was uh, actually surprised to find that Jesus gets very short shrift among the Templars. In fact, they hardly even bring up the guy at all. Uh, their biggest preoccupation was with John the Baptist and Mary Magdalene. And in fact, they dedicated a disproportionate amount of churches uh, to those two people, uh, to the point where even uh, with regard to Portugal as a nation state, uh, it, it achieved independence on the feast day of Mary Magdalene, and then it became a nation state on the feast day of John the Baptist. Uh, they were making this connection very, very clear all the way through. And in fact, when it came to the uh, 18th century, the Pope himself even admitted that uh, the Templars were following a secret Joannite heresy. Um, and it's interesting because when you look at the, uh, the way the Catholic Church uh, treats Jesus and John the Baptist, uh, in the Baptist is, is important, but it's Jesus that gets all the attention. Now, it's important to clarify a couple of things here. Um, in the Masonic tradition, which basically is a continuation of the Templar tradition, um, it's quite clear that the, uh, there are two pillars in the hierarchy of the continuation of the mystery schools. There were two teachers. Uh, one was a priestly messiah and one was a kingly messiah. Jesus was seen very much as the kingly messiah. Uh, in, uh, uh, in a way, he was almost a PR person, the front person for the movement into the, uh, into the mysteries. John the Baptist, however, held all the power because he was the priestly Messiah. And he was following from an old tradition of a bloodline of special uh, magician kings who also had been indoctrinated into the mystery secrets. And their purpose was literally to elevate people to their highest potential. So when we start looking at the Templars and how they honored John the Baptist and how they promoted uh, his uh, ideology, uh, it's quite clear that uh, they felt that something was uh, overshadowed by the Catholic Church. And this is one of the biggest secrets that they maintained right after their death. So much so that uh, when the um, Night of the Long Knives finally happened in uh, 1307 and the Church and Philip of France finally came down on the Templars, the only object of great importance that was found uh, among the Templars and especially the, the preceptor in Paris was the uh, mummified head of John the Baptist. The, the silver-plated mummified head. Exactly. Uh, and I believe it was eventually taken to Constantinople. Uh, it was actually on display in the uh, Hagia Sophia, if I'm not mistaken, up until recently, um, if it's not still there. Um, but it's interesting that the church was maintaining that the Templars were following a tradition of initiation that worked with the devil, and the devil was called Baphomet. Now, if you ask an Arabic person what Baphomet means, it's actually an Arabic name, and it literally means the father of wisdom or the source of wisdom. And uh, if you look at the Mandean culture, which survived all the persecutions in the Middle East all the way up to, through to today, they too still follow the gospel of John the Baptist to this very day. Uh, they still claim that Jesus was an important person, but he was a sideline. John the Baptist is the man who practices the mysteries 
and the secrets of the Essenes uh, regarding the resurrection of the soul while you are still in the body. Um, so this is why it was so important that the Templars uh, were trying to make this point and why they were persecuted at the very end. They were following what the church felt to be a huge heresy and a huge undermining of its own power structure. Well, in fact, the, the church had really hung its power on the back of accepting Jesus Christ and and then being saved rather than... Um, as the uh, the Templars and the, the the Johannites were claiming that you could be saved through your own um, studies and acceptance of the way, so oh, absolutely. I, I, I can understand that that would have totally uh, undermined the church, and that's kind of what's happening today, isn't it? Oh, very much so. In fact, I've, uh, since you brought that up, it reminds me of a uh, wonderful line in the Gnostic Gospel of Philip, which is one of the, uh, the Gospels that was uh, carefully selected out of the official Bible. And there is a passage in it uh, which quite clearly states that um, anyone believing in the resurrection uh, is, uh, as an actual event is confusing a spiritual concept with a, a physical truth. Uh, so even the early Christian church, the Gnostic church, which the uh, fundamentalist Christians overran into what became the Catholic church, uh, they knew that the resurrection was a myth. Uh, it goes back to the time of Osiris. It's a concept that gets uh, rejuvenated from age to age with different sects. And they recognize that the... Um, the resurrection has to be experienced while you're still in the body. And the Gospel of Philip makes this very, very clear. So uh, it clearly was part of an initiation preparation into the greater mysteries of life that followed the tradition of the Osirian myths, uh, going all the way back to ancient Egypt. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to Solomon's Temple and all of those excavations at some point, the Templars kind of packed up and shifted operations to Portugal. Uh, what is the assumption, what they took with them, what they well, found and took with them? This is where it gets very exciting as a story. Um, back in 1121, someone had actually found something because one of the uh, knights is known to have traveled all the way to what is today Belgium with secret manuscripts. And he sourced a man who was actually really into deciphering ancient biblical texts. Uh, you put that uh, story together and you realize that whatever they found wasn't a monetary treasure, although there was gold buried under Temple Mount for sure. And the Ascend scrolls that were found in the latter years of the 20th century do say that there was a hoard of gold that they put there. But they also put a spiritual treasure there uh, to do with uh, manuscripts. So one of the Templars is uh, known to have got, traveled to Latter-day Belgium to decipher these scrolls. And in the meantime, the rest of the Templars kept digging away and beavering away. And then something very dramatic happened around uh, 1125. There was a lot of excitement going on on Temple Mound. And this is what I have, uh, what I discovered in the archives in Portugal, uh, and very dusty old caves and things like that, the kind of thing you expect in Indiana Jones. Um, <laughs> I did discover this entry by a Templar knight in Portugal a couple of centuries later that claims that he was writing the actual history of what had happened and what had taken place and how the Templars ended up in Portugal. 
And uh, there's a comment which absolutely floored me. And he said that in 1125, at the end of um, December, uh, Hugh de Payon, the Templar Grand Master, uh, sent five uh, procurators to Portugal with the aim of establishing a Portuguese crown. That's a direct quote. Mm-hmm. And he even gives the names of these people. And these people actually do show up in Portugal. Uh, they are written in uh, the texts. They are written in uh, title deeds to properties, which I was able to unearth. Uh, so clearly there was a plan linked to whatever they found at that moment. Because what was also happening at the time in Jerusalem was that during this decade, Hugh de Payon himself had been working quietly with a mysterious order of monks called the Order of Sion, who were living in the adjacent hill of uh, Mount Sion. Now, this is the one place where there used to be a basilica where the Essenes did actually practice their resurrection mysteries in a chamber called the Chamber of Mysteries. Uh, And that has been uncovered by archaeologists in the last 30 years. So there was something going on between uh, the Templar master and the head of the Order of Sion, a man called Prior Pedros Arnaldus, who I tracked down as having been one of the original um, Frenchmen who was born in Portugal uh, back in 11, uh, uh, 1100, who was sent to Jerusalem, and he actually met Hugh de Payon. And this same man became the head of the Order of Sion as well. Now, 25 years later, this same man is one of the five uh, Templar procurators that is sent back to Portugal to establish this Templar crown. So this was something that was already two decades in the making, but it was only when there was all of this shuffling going on on Temple Mound where the Templars did unearth something of extraordinary potential that suddenly the concept of creating a nation-state comes around because all of their contacts suddenly uh, come out of the woodwork uh, in uh, Portugal or the county of Portugal, as it was called back then. It was a tiny, tiny county. Uh, Suddenly all of their contacts come into uh, form. Um, they suddenly began to inherit huge uh, amounts of property at a faster rate than they were in the rest of Europe. And all of their political connections and contacts came into play as if suddenly the time was right to implement whatever it was that they were trying to achieve. And if you fast forward only uh, 10 years uh, into the future, suddenly, after the creation of Portugal as a nation-state, the Templars are given one-third of the entire country to establish a kingdom within a kingdom. And that's where suddenly the, uh, the red flags start going up, that they were trying to put there a secret of such incredible importance that they, they knew had to be put there as far away from uh, Rome as possible. What I found so interesting was the incredible long-term planning. I mean, there was a master plan that was meticulously executed patiently put in place stone by stone, person by person. And whatever it was that they were promising the people who donated their property, it must have been something of of enormous spiritual importance because uh, they just gave them so much wealth. Oh, absolutely. And the fact that there was supposedly only nine men behind the Templars assures us that the threat of violence was not a motivating factor. (laughs) Um, So clearly there was something else going on. So if you put this into context of the period and you have the church who is universally hated, uh, I mean, they basically made sure that you either joined the church or you died. You had no choice. 
uh, the Templars were giving you a choice. They were saying, well, here we are. Um, we are a, a small group of people who are following a very ancient tradition, and we've got something very important to give you. Uh, in return, we will give you protection. We will teach you how to uh, learn the husbandry of crops and animals. We will feed the poor. We will house the poor. We will teach you how to farm. And in case you get attacked, we'll also protect you. And people thought, okay, this is very, very good. Of course, we're going to give you all our, what little money we have, and you can have all our property. And yet that still didn't seem to be enough, and I kept probing. And I actually did find uh, quotes by incoming recruits into the Templars that suggested that uh, they had to actually uh, utter this specific vow before they joined the Templars, and specifically their inner brotherhood, because there were two brotherhoods. Uh, one was... Now to Brotherhood, who was invested in doing temporal things, uh, sometimes they had to do fighting, of course, uh, but there was an inner Brotherhood who was behaving very much in uh, a spiritual context. And when you look at the uh, vow that these incoming recruits had to utter, it is quite clear that uh, they expected to receive something of great spiritual importance. Um, later, when the Inquisition finally gets hold of the Templars and is able to extract uh, some information out of a few of them, because most of them died going to their grave with all of their secrets, they would not divulge this under pain of death, there was one book that they found by accident which did state that um, all the Templar brothers working with the Inner Brotherhood they did have to create under their houses uh, secret meeting places where the brothers could go about uh, without the fear of punishment or being discovered. And uh, I can almost quote this from uh, memory, that this is a place where the un uninitiated brothers or people from the outer brotherhood should never learn about because these secret chambers uh, are places where the inner brotherhood should actually conduct the practices of turning, uh, the alchemical practices of turning uh, uh, um, material base uh, objects into gold. And that's the very famous uh, tradition of alchemy, where we turn a, a base object into something much greater. And of course, the metaphor uh, that is known throughout the mysteries was that's how you took a basic ordinary individual, and through the transmutation, through the learning and the teachings of the mysteries, they will become transformed into a golden object. So clearly they were practicing something of incredible spiritual value, which the church on no account was ever going to teach them. And the one thing that was very clear from what they were doing, if you look at the teachings of John the Baptist, uh, Mary Magdalene, and all of these people that had been totally chastised or put aside by the church, is that the, um, they were following the tradition of self-empowerment. And this self-empowerment very much to do with the raising of self-awareness uh, for you to have a mystical and personal experience of God. Not a religious experience, but an experience of faith. And that faith pretty much puts you in touch with the creative force, uh, which is a conversation that you have between yourself and God, whatever you, you come to think of what it is. Um, so this is, of course, very, very crucial and very uh, dangerous in the, t in the period in which it was happening. So no wonder uh, great steps were taken by the Templars and other people like the Cathars as well, who did very similar things, uh, to protect these secrets because they brought incredible benefit to anyone who worked with them. Mm. There were also the uh, temporal benefits of living in a society that valued 
um, uh, agrarian husbandry. And Tell us about the Cistercians. You say in your book something about their taking deserts and making them bloom. They sounded <laughs> like an incredible community. They were way ahead of uh, the uh, the game. I mean, you could consider them being the forerunners of the 60s New Age movement. Uh, peace and love to um, uh, humanity, uh, emancipation and equal rights to women, uh, taking care of uh, the poor, education. I mean, these people were so way ahead of anybody. Uh, it, uh, In fact, in order to understand the Templars and uh, even to understand what they were doing in Portugal, you first have to understand the Cistercians, and specifically uh, its head, uh, the abbot Bernard of Clairvaux. Uh, I was able to catch up with 500 of his surviving letters, and I pretty much managed to get under his skin to find out what kind of a person he was. And uh, he really was a romantic. I mean, he wanted to have uh, a personal, mystical experience of God. Uh, it, uh, it was very personal. It wasn't about religion. But also, it was about the uh, putting into practice the importance that uh, we are not the uh, end-all and be-all of the material world. Uh, there's a greater universe that surrounds us. And if we can only learn to interact with it, the uh, fruits of the kingdom of God uh, come much closer into your life. Uh, what he was saying, essentially, is that if you once you start communing with a finer elements of nature uh, and of the cosmos, and you accept these things as part of your physical being, that you have a degree of control over your life. Uh, you don't have to be a slave to what people tell you to do or to, or to what to believe. So the Cistercians were basically very much into renouncing uh, the attachment to material possessions, lest they lead you astray into false presumptions which, of course, there was a lot of greed back in that particular era. You either had a lot of comfort or you were basically dying of poverty. There was a huge discrepancy that was going on in medieval Europe. So when they basically ended up in Portugal, the um, third of the kingdom that they inherited was a wasteland. And uh, wherever the, the Cistercians moved, and in fact the first Cistercian monastery in Portugal actually was placed there on the very year that the Templars were made official, uh, in Jerusalem, which is 1118, uh, even though I have proof that seven years earlier the Templars were already present in, in Portugal, uh, which is something that's not historically known. But that's another story. So the Cistercians were very much behind the, uh, they were sort of the, the door openers for the way that the Templars ended up in Portugal and how they ended up with a territory that was basically a piece of rubbish. It was uh, laid to waste from you know, centuries of protracted warfare with the Arabs. And yet within a couple of years, they turned the whole thing into a major oasis. Uh, they were trading a surplus of food with Lisbon, the capital city. Uh, and wherever they went, they seemed to have a certain knack for basically endearing themselves to people because they basically didn't beat them over the head and told them what to believe, what to worship, and what to do. They just said that everybody is an equal. Uh, we will admit uh, women into the order. Uh, a lot of the Templars and the Cistercians were even married. Uh, and we don't get to hear about this. So this, of course, was manna from heaven to the local population when they heard that uh, they could actually do and behave in ways that uh, unrestricted them uh, from the uh, confines that the Catholic Church was trying to impose throughout Europe. 
this was just one of the things that they did. The, the second thing that they did is that they actually educated you into the greater mysteries of life, what, how things really do work, how nature really works. And these are very ancient concepts. And, of course, Bernard of Clairvaux, being a very learned man of his period, he also worked with mystics in the, um, the Jewish community in Troy in France. Who were bun- there were a bunch of Kabbalists who were really into deciphering ancient documents. So he also knew about the ancient mystery secrets that were hidden underneath uh, Jerusalem that dated all the way back to the Egyptian temple uh, culture. So when you put these things together, what you're looking at is a, a group of mystics who followed a very ancient tradition of self-empowerment. And when you have everybody working on an equal platform, it's not surprising that within a decade, in fact, even less than a decade, uh, this uh, totally desolate area in uh, what is now central Portugal blossomed into this huge paradise. Hmm. Yeah. You mentioned before about the tunnels that they were digging, and and, uh, quite prominent throughout your book is the whole idea of digging into bedrock. You've got tunnels everywhere in Jerusalem. You've got tunnels in Portugal. And you've got these incredible churches in Ethiopia. What was this Ethiopian connection? Oh, the Templars later on in life were fascinated with the the kingdom of Prester John, um, which is always, if you read up some of the uh, entries in, on the Internet uh, and a certain website on knowledge, which I won't mention, um, they seem to think the uh, acceptance by official scholars is that the kingdom of Preston John in Ethiopia was a fictitious kingdom. Uh, actually, it was a real kingdom, and there is actual evidence to show that it was. And the, the whole idea of Preston John was actually a uh, mistranslation of the actual identity of the king of Ethiopia. Uh, these kings were said to be part of uh, a group of people who escaped persecution after Solomon's temple, and they were carrying on the idea of a holy bloodline, which is also a theme that runs very deep through the Templar story. Uh, they were protecting, obviously, the bloodline of the Magdalene, uh, who supposedly was related at some point to John the Baptist. And in fact, the Templars and their rule that was devised by Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, they were following the rule to uphold the castle of Mary and Martha, which is essentially the bloodline of Mary Magdalene. So there was another sort of story that was running underneath all of this with the Templar uh, tradition. But the idea as to how they ended up in in Ethiopia was also to follow the uh, course of this bloodline to its natural conclusion and and where it's part of it escaped to. And when they were there, they dug all of these incredible cruciform-shaped churches out of living bedrock. And uh, when you uh, wanted to reach them, you'd actually go through these uh, long tunnels, again, carved out of living bedrock, which go on forever. It's a lot of trouble to go to, and uh, it really did fascinate me as to why they would go for this incredible uh, idea of uh, making churches uh, cut out of mountainsides. It's, it's much easier just to cut the rock and then just basically build churches, and yet they didn't. And uh, when I found the same tunnels linking sacred sites to the Templars that are simulated in Portugal, and knowing a lot about sacred spaces I do, I began to put one and one together and realized that what they were looking for wasn't just the path and the location of a bloodline. It was also that they were searching specific hotspots on the, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, on the face of the earth. 
uh, where the laws of physics are slightly twisted, which allow for certain shamanic moments. Uh, and I would never would have known this unless I'd known uh, how sacred sites work in the first place. And it's probably why it's taken me 15 years to research this book. I had to work uh, the Templars from the back. So when you examine a lot of these places in Ethiopia and you start linking them to what they were doing in Europe as well, and specifically to their sites in Portugal, they appear to be following an ancient tradition of geodesy, where they would locate hot spots of energy on the Earth's surface, and then they would create temples on them, designed in a specific geometric manner that would harness this energy, that would act and amplify your state of awareness, and it would allow you to have a, a, an out-of-body experience. Um, to put this into context, um, as a framework that we can understand, you can, uh, if you go to Giza and you look at the Great Pyramid, uh, it is now quite clear that uh, where the pyramid stands, it's at the junction of many of the Earth's lines of energy, uh, what scientists call the telluric current network. And when you put a geometric building uh, on this uh, location and you angle things in a certain manner and you align its inner courseways to certain geometric forms and to certain mathematical ratios that relate to the music scale, for example, uh, it's, uh, experiments now show that if you go there in a certain state of grace, these buildings do alter your state of consciousness. And there's enough people that have uh, had experiences in places like the Great Pyramid, uh, especially scientists, that do show quite clearly that the sites, carefully chosen, carefully designed, do allow you to have a shamanic moment where you do, for either a day, an hour, or a whole weekend, under certain conditions, you will have a, an actual direct experience of God or as a creative force. Uh, if you don't like the religious context of that. Uh, so that's pretty much what they were doing when they went all the way to Ethiopia and also to their sites in Europe, uh, why they searched specific locations to find this, uh, these uh, locations where they could have this mystical experience. Uh, according to your book, they were also interested in finding the Ark of the Covenant. Oh, very much so. Uh, it was also a fascination that they were following. In fact, after the, uh, the Templars uh, stopped being Templars in Portugal because of the persecutions by the Catholic Church, um, Portugal played, or the King of Portugal played what must be the uh, history's best uh, practical joke on the Catholic Church. They sent the uh, Roma letter explaining that um, the Templars no longer existed. But uh, incredibly, they've been replaced by another group of knights called the Knights of the Order of Christ, which is essentially was a PR exercise. They were the same people. They just basically went on holiday for six years. <laughs> and after this time, the Knights of the Order of Christ, as they are still known today in Portugal, they too developed a fascination with going to Ethiopia. And they basically, uh, uh, it was actually driven by their uh, search for the passage to India through the famous navigator Vasco da Gama. And it was his... Um, uh, no, it wasn't his brother. It was his son who eventually did find the maritime route to Ethiopia uh, 200 years after the Templars had been there. And they apparently uh, did try to make inroads into locating the true source of the tablets of uh, the covenant, which, of course, the, the tablets of stone upon which all the words of God are written. Because I believe that after finding all of these scrolls under, under Jerusalem, 
and looking at all the things that the Ascends had written about the, uh, the uh, true words of God, that they wanted to find the actual source of where this stuff came from, just to make sure that, you know, the, uh, you know as, as things tend to happen over uh, centuries, when you keep rewriting things, uh, the original source tends to get a little bit sort of muddled. So part of their uh, aim was to go back to Ethiopia, not just to keep track of the, of the bloodline of uh, Ma- the Magdalene, but also to find out the source of where this wisdom had come from. And um, whether they found it or not is another matter, but I do point to Graham Hancock's incredible research where in his book, The, um, the Sign and the Seal, I believe it's called, uh, he was able to track down the Ark of the Covenant to the church that was dedicated to the Mary Magdalene in Aksum in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. So there's more than idle conjecture that the Portuguese, who were the first Europeans to basically travel to Ethiopia, and that is a noted historical fact, uh, because the Ethiopians also sent a deputation to Lisbon to uh, as a sign of uh, a diplomatic intimacy between the two countries, uh, that they obviously found something. Uh, in Ethiopia that did relate to that. Um, whether they took it, I, I'm not sure, because Graham did actually find that there is a priest that back in the 90s was still uh, the person that was looking after the Ark of the Covenant inside this church, and under no account would that Ark ever be revealed to anyone. So whether this is true or false, I don't know, but I can tell you that the priests do only survive a few years inside that church because before they succumb to extreme radiation poisoning. And they know that they're going there to protect something of great value and that they will die doing so. So obviously there is something very, very important there. And the Portuguese Templars did obviously make that big journey to make sure and to try and find out that, yes, there was something true behind the story. Mm-hmm. Indeed, you said it took like two or three years to get there. Oh, now, the, the Portuguese have been uh, traveling in other directions as well, and your uh, claim is that they actually traveled to America uh, before Columbus. I think Uh, just about everybody did. (laughs) (laughs) But um, you have an interesting take on the naming of America. Can you explore that? Yeah, I was actually quite fascinated because, as we all been taught in school in this country, uh, America is named after in honor of America Vespucci, who was the man who actually did set foot on American soil, uh, not Columbus. He got as far as the Dominican Republic, and uh, it, this is what we've been fed uh, all these years. Now, it's interesting that uh, it's actually a historical fact that uh, Europeans knew for at least a 100 years that this story was literally concocted by an amateur priest who was fancied himself, uh, sorry, a, a priest who fancied himself as an amateur archaeologist and historian. And uh, in his best intent, he cobbled together all of these uh, unrelated facts that uh, eventually became uh, an asserted fact that America Vespucci lent his name to this country. Uh, the whole thing was actually a big misnomer. Uh, if you follow the um, story of the Templars and how they worked with a lot of uh, secret sects over in Jerusalem at the time, one of these uh, sects were the Sabians of Haram, who were also keepers of ancient traditions to do with resurrection, of um, following the traditions of John the Baptist, and also of um, uh, ritual bathing, which is one of the things, of course, that uh, John the Baptist was known for, for baptisms and ritual bathing. And when you look at the Sabians and what they were also uh, preaching, 
it's quite clear that they were following an even older tradition that goes back to the time of Zoroaster in Persia, uh, about 2000 BC. And uh, one of the things that becomes very clear when you read the um, readings of all of these Eastern cultures is that the search for personal enlightenment is always to do with following a mystical land that lies to the West. And uh, the aim of the initiate is to follow this star in the West, and the star was called Medica. And you can find this on any of these Eastern traditional books even today. Uh, any book on uh, Templar mythology or even Masonic mythology will still bring this up to this very day. So when the Templars were basically uh, being hounded by the church and by Philip IV of France, they escaped to Portugal and to Scotland, where they were given safe passage. And it's very well known that the Scottish Templars and the Portuguese Templars worked very closely together. Uh, you only have to look at the uh, in, uh, Initiate's Pillar in uh, Rosslyn Chapel to see that that pillar came from the Manmaline Church uh, in Portugal, which is basically the center of all the Templar operations after their persecution. It's a unique style found only in Portugal. So it was a gift. Um, so when the uh, Templars were basically handed to the westernmost point of Europe, the most logical place where they could last escape to was, of course, the New World. And the, uh, somehow through their connections with the uh, Arabs, which they were very friendly with, uh, the Arabs had already secured maps from the old Egyptians who uh, discovered that there were lands beyond the Western Ocean. And these maps have come to light in recent years, uh, one of them being the map of Piri Reis, who clearly shows uh, the outline of an American continent uh, uh, hundreds, if not 2,000 years before anyone actually discovered this. So when the Templars from Portugal met up with the Templars in Scotland, they basically went over to um, uh, Labrador, or as uh, we know in Portuguese, it was originally called Lavrador. It literally means a, uh, a plowman or someone who works and, and tends the land. So the name of the uh, uh, easternmost province of Canada is actually a Portuguese name. And uh, when I was looking at, through some of the archives in Harvard, uh, of all places, I did discover a map that quite clearly shows that 40 years before Columbus even set sail, there is a Portuguese Templar flag firmly planted on Labrador soil right next to Newfoundland. Uh, and even when the Vikings uh, ventured to Newfoundland, they claimed that when they got there and they were actually trading with the Native Americans, the Native Americans called this uh, strange fish a bacalhau, which as anybody in Portugal will tell you, is Portuguese cod. for cod. So they were there uh, quite clearly. Uh, and the rest, of course, is history because they then traveled further south. And uh, whether you believe these stories or not, um, they created this uh, unusual uh, round uh, tower, which is in uh, Rhode Island. And there's also the effigy uh, in, um, that's, I, I believe it's in Massachusetts, of a Templar knight complete with the sword and his hilt, which is very common to the knights of that particular century. So it's more than idle conjecture that the, these two groups of persecuted Templars in Portugal and Scotland did venture far west. Mm. So, Freddie, what do the Templars have to say to us today? Oh, a lot. Uh, I just came back a couple of weeks ago with two tour groups where I, uh, I took a group of people to look at these places that I wrote in the book. Um, they came back wide-eyed, of course. 
And it's funny that when you go to all of these places, the one thing that stands out in common is that it's, we're not just walking through history when we see these places. We are actually passing right through history itself. We are immersed in it. And we're also immersed in the spirit of place. Um, every single Templar location that they specifically uh, fought for, and very, very uh, hard as well, was that every one of them, without exception, was an ancient site of veneration to the divine feminine. Uh, every uh, Templar castle in Portugal, if not in Europe, uh, protects uh, an ancient site dedicated to Isis or her European counterpart, uh, Ceres, uh, or a, tem a temple dedicated to Diana. Uh, they were obviously after a location of energy that related to the divine feminine. And these places are still alive and breathing. Uh, you can still go there. You can still get, put yourself in a, in a right state of mind and go into a state of prayer or shamanic journeying. And it's amazing what these places still do for you. So despite the fact that these people are uh, long since gone, they left behind this incredible legacy, which we can still interact with, uh, which is called the spirit of place. So mm -hmm. these sacred sites are still alive. They are still working. And it was, again, uh, we are following this tradition where today we are searching for an answer to uh, an antidote to our, our problem here on Earth. Uh, what am I doing here? What is my journey? Who am I? Uh, these are perennial questions we've asked ourselves for thousands of years. And the Templars, like anybody else, found the key. And uh, whenever we go on these little tours to these sites, if we go there in a state of reverence, we also, for a few minutes or a few hours, also get a sense of what it's like to connect with a finer universe. And we do have these moments of introspection where we are able to leave the body and come back in a very enlightened way. And you do that often enough. And you begin to develop a sense of who you really are and what your connection in the bigger scheme of things really is. Uh, and it may seem very simplistic to boil it down to that. It sounds like a New Age concept. But, you know, uh, I think the Templars were the original New Age people because they were following exactly the same questions. They were looking for exactly the same answers that we were looking for. And I believe they found it. And they, they tried their very best to protect this information from people who had misused this kind of energy. Because it can work both ways. Um, you know, it's just energy. Uh, it, it swings into, into right action or into uh, wrong action. And it's your intent that gives it the direction. So no wonder they protected it with their lives. The, these are things we've been looking for and we, we should protect um, with our very lives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So where can people go to find out more about your work and your, your tours and other books and so on? Oh, my website, invisibletemple.com, because that's what it's about. It's about the invisible temple. It's not so much the stones and things that we touch when we go to these places. It's what lies behind them. And uh, you'd be surprised what uh, happens to you when you travel to these places, uh, whether they're Templar places or Stonehenge or a pyramid. Something really profound does change you from the inside. And after that, your life will never be the same. I, I just want to add a little afterward. When I think about the Templars and the, the Cistercians in particular, there is this um, spiritual pillar to their lives, but there's also this incredible sense of service to the greater good, service to the earth, of, of actual physical labor and putting... Uh, uh, the greater good ahead of material wealth 
I, I just wanted to give a shout out to that because that was such an impressive part of the ethos of the Templars that came through your, your book. Oh, very much so. I mean, the workings of the uh, their inner brotherhood especially does suggest that they followed a mystical practice that was common to esoteric cults, such as the Egyptian mystics and the Mandeans and the Essenes. And these cults held special covenants that embodied the spiritual aspirations of all peoples. Uh, the aim was essentially the improvement of the human condition. And it is stated by the uh, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, and his, uh, his cult of sister, uh, it was all about the improvement of the human condition so that you leave the place and yourself in a better condition than, uh, than you found it. Um, so they literally were exalted Buddhists by any other name. <laughs> well, it's been such a delight to read your book, Freddie, and I, I did have to slog through um, almost 300 pages, but actually <laughs> it was more a dig than a slog. I got into the spirit of the temple. Oh, I make you work hard. I really make you work hard. I want you to be part of the process. But I did appreciate that you kept on coming back and, and sort of encapsulating everything to, to bring us back uh, into the picture. So I, I highly recommend First Templar Nation, um, How the Knights Templar Created Europe's First Nation State by Freddie Silva. Freddie, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Miriam. Always a pleasure. You'll find First Templar Nation along with all the books and films and interviews we cover on our website, ncreview.com. Next week, our guest will be raw food and green smoothie advocate, Victoria Butenko. It should be a very tasty show. And now we're going to close with our track of the week by Up With People, whose mission is to bridge cultural barriers and create global understanding through service and a musical show. This song is called Room for Everyone.
for everyone by Up With People from their album, Beat of the Future. Their website is upwithpeople.org. And they're members of the Positive Music Association, whose website is positivemusicassociation.com. Well, that's our show for today. I do hope you'll join us next week. Until then, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for joining us. Goodbye. Goodbye.